Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever-merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. A very warm welcome to all of our listeners to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam. Uh, myself, Nafis Kamar. I am presenting the breakfast show today with my co-host, um, Brother Asim. Assalamu alaikum, Asim. How are you? Assalamu alaikum, Brother Nafis. I'm good. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, very well. Today we'll be uh, discussing a number of interesting uh, points and uh, um, we're looking at different topics. Um, Asim, could you kindly introduce us to um, these segments, what uh, they are and how many we have, in fact? Absolutely. So we have three segments today. The first segment is Leading by Example, President Pendravoski walks with bullied girl to school. And the second segment is dehumanizing the arrival of migrants and immigrants. And the last segment is South Asian Heritage Month 2023. And of course, we will have expert callers calling in and giving us an insight on these topics. Absolutely. So in segment one, we will be uh, looking at the importance of not judging those with a disability and how to ensure that these people are included fully in society and community and what are th- some of the challenges that uh, those with the disability uh, with disabilities encounter uh, and um, especially those from the Asian subcontinent uh, we will also be looking at um, the those with a disability that are generally more uh, perceptible to feeling isolated and lonely and why do we keep hearing uh, repetitive cases of bullying and most importantly like always with this segment we will be looking at the Islamic perspective what the Holy Quran has actually said what teachings it has given and the sayings of the Prophet founder of Islam Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and uh, of course looking at um, quotes and uh, sermons of the promised messiah and the khulafa in the second segment we uh, as brother Azim just mentioned dehumanizing the arrival of migrants and immigrants we will be looking at um, an overview of how many migrants have arrived over the past uh, last year and how many of them include children and mothers and what happens at migrant centers when they arrive actually uh is the support for them good that they receive and most of all the islamic angle as most of our listeners are aware we will be looking at the islamic angle and what um, islam has taught with regards to this and in the last segment uh, which is about the south asian heritage month 2023 we will start off by looking at the its background uh, what it actually is and uh, we will go further and look into the history of the South Asian uh, uh, month and um, well, how it's related to the uh, United Kingdom. But uh, before we move on to the segments, uh, I just want to check and let our listeners know about the, about the weather. Um, it has been a bit up and down. It's been a bit... You know, suddenly sunny, as well as rainy, as well as uh, windy. So it's been um, up and down. And Brother Asim, 
Would you enlighten us with this regard? Absolutely. So the headline says staying unsettled with scattered heavy showers. Wow. Uh, today, a brighter day with sunny spells and blustery showers. Some of the showers will be heavy and thundery at times. Cloudier skies from northern Scotland where with rain here at times. The best of sunshine in so- southeast England. Tonight, as showers continue for Scotland and northeast England but turning mostly dry with some clear spells in the west, staying breezy on exposed coasts. So we will have some showers as it has been going on for the past few days. Absolutely, yes, it has been um, a roller coaster. In fact, when it comes to the weather, and it reminds me of the the three days we spent. Most of our us spent. In fact, a lot of people from all over the world came and spent those three days in Hadigal uh, Madi in Alton, which is actually a farm, and we had our three-day annual convention there at a full scale this time after the pandemic and uh, yeah even absolutely yeah we had like more than 41,000 people attending the event and uh, our caliph gave numerous speeches and uh, we had a lot of activities there as well a lot of activities the you would normally think that um, on a farm uh, it would be very difficult to um, carry out such a uh, an event at, at such a large scale but community is well organized well prepared for the for the worst and even with the weather that we did have we had some challenges but um the teams and the experts who work day and night to make sure that it's a success uh they made sure everything went um according to plan this year in fact they had uh, introduced a drainage system uh, so the water is drained after it rains and you could see its fruits um, uh, we had a number of rains, uh, showers over there, but uh, you would see after a number of hours uh, the ground will be dry, and that's uh, something that we hadn't seen in the past. Uh, looking at the news items and papers today, uh, most of Thursday's front pages focus on Donald Trump, who is set to appear in court charged with plotting to overturn his 2020 election defeat. A 45-page indictment accuses him of knowingly spreading uh, uh, lies about uh, election fraud that threaten American democracy. A beaming photo of York's first resident rabbi in centuries also catches the eye on the side of the broadcast sheet. Uh, Pop star uh, Lizzo and Donald Trump dominate the top of the metro as the paper reports on the lawsuit filed against the singer and fresh charges leveled against the former president. The paper leads with Rishi Sunak hinting he may not call a general election before January 2025 in comments made during the uh, during a LBC listener phone in. One of the four bullet points on the front page front page says the prime minister is going to Disneyland with his wife and daughters for uh, for, for the first for first proper holiday in years. Donald Trump uh, features on the front of the I newspaper as it reports Tuesday's uh, charges and Thursday's court appearance, his third in four months. It also quotes comments Mr. Trump made on his uh, Truth Social Network. In the bottom right-hand corner of the paper, 
is a review of the last uh, latest radio lis- uh, listening figures sp- uh, spelling bad news for BBC Two Radio. That is. Um, so we have uh, more news. Uh, record wet weather drives shoppers away from High Street. The number of people heading out to the shops fell for the first July in 14 years as the UK grappled with one of the wettest months on record. Overall, food for all was down by 0.3% in the first drop in July since 2009, as said retail analysis firm Springboard. High Street uh, were hit hardest by shopping centres and retail parks got a boost in number of visitors. Aside from the rain, the rising cost of living and rail disruption were also behind the fall. Uh, it warned that shoppers could continue to stay away even if the weather picked up. It is inevitable that consumers' attention will now turn towards planning for Christmas spending, which may well dampen footfall further in the latter part of the summer, said Springboard's uh, Diana Werle. Shoppers have, have been battling one of, with one of the wettest July on record, according to provisional data. The Bank of England has been raising interest rates to cool down the economy amidst record rises in consumer costs. So it is um, not good for the shopping markets. Uh, another news is that uh, UK interest rates expected to rise for 14th time in a row. Interest rates are expected to rise for the 14th time in a row as the Bank of England continues its battle to control stubbornly high price rises. Most economists have predicted that the bank will increase its base rate to 5.25% from its current 5% later on Thursday. That would mean higher interest rates on mortgages and loans for some people but also higher saving rates. Mm-hmm. UK inflation and the rate at which prices rise is much higher than usual and putting households under pressure. The last time interest rates stood at 5.25% was 15 years ago in April 2008. However, a rise to 5.25% would mark a smaller increase than July's dramatic rise from 5% um, uh, to 5% from 4.5% and follows signs that price rise has begun to ease. Absolutely, some interesting news there. But um, the one that they mentioned about the, the numbers of shoppers dropping, and uh, I don't know if they clearly blamed the weather or not, but it seemed like they they did. But I think, in my personal opinion, it will be more to do with the economical state of uh, uh, of this country and the uh, financial state, the uh, roller coaster. In fact, the financial roller coaster that people are going through. Uh, as mentioned in the um, cost of living crisis and uh, the, in, in, I mean, we just mentioned that the interest rates are going up. So people who are homeowners, um, they must be uh, worried with regards to their monthly uh, mortgage payments. Um, looking further at today's papers, the Financial Times leads with Donald Trump's defense lawyer labeling the trial timeline absurd as the former president's lawyer rejects a move to take the 2020 election case to court in a matter of months ahead of next year's U.S. presidential election. Uh, Underneath the preview of a story about 
the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, the Daily Mail's lead focuses on mounting anger at green power firm Drax, which has been accused of exploiting an energy subsidy loophole to avoid paying £339 million back to cash-strapped households. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau features in the main image of Thursday's edition of the Daily Telegraph after the 51-year-old announced he ha- he and his wife would be separating. The lead story uh, centres the Gwent police reviewing the content of a leaflet about traveller and gypsy sites which were sent to constituents by the government's Welsh Secretary. David Davis defends the leaflet, arguing the location of sites was a legitimate matter for public debate. The Daily Mirror takes aim at uh, comments made by Rishi Sunak, blaming striking doctors for rising NHS waiting lists, a timeline graphic on the front of the table tabloid appears to show waiting lists going up long before strikes began in 2022. The paper also makes space for this year's memorable World Cup with England's Lauren James, who's who's in demand uh, featured on the masthead. Justin Trudeau's split from his wife Sophie features on the front of the Times as it reports on the end of the couple's 18-year marriage. The side of the broadcast sheet has a story of numbers watching traditional television each week dropping below 80% as more viewers reportedly switched to streaming services and social media. More from Rishi Sunak's LBC listener phone in as the Daily Express picks up the Prime Minister's insistence that the pay offer on the table to doctors is final, something the paper brands a blunt ultimatum. King Charles waves at the top of the uh, masthead at the, as headlines write, writers tease the wet August weather which is likely to continue. Finally, the Daily Star has a story about Baker who refuses to catch for ex-Coronation Street actress Catherine, uh, Catherine's 14th, 40th birthday in exchange for publicity rather than money. The TV star said she did not know the emails had been sent and called the whole affair bizarre. Most of Thursday's front pages touch on Donald Trump facing his third and most serious set of criminal charges. The former US president is due in a courtroom in Washington after being accused of plotting to overturn the result of the last presidential election. Several papers also feature Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife Sophie after the couple announced their separation after 18 years of marriage. Elsewhere, the Financial Times says the government will once again delay the introduction of full post-Brexit controls on animal and plant products from the EU. Uh, Measures were due to come into force in October, but the paper says ministers fear the additional bureaucracy would increase costs when they are trying to cut inflation. The Daily Telegraph reports uh, Wales Secretary David T.C. Davis is being investigated after he sent a leaflet about 
a proposed traveller site in his constituency. The paper says the Home Secretary, as well as Braverman, believes the investigation is a waste of time. <clears throat> Works and Pension Secretary Mel Stride tells the Times people over the age of 50 should consider delivering takeaways and other flexible jobs if, they, if, the, if, if their finances are stretched. He also urged employers to give older workers great flexibility to attract them back to the workplace. Uh, Rishi Sunak's LBC phone-in feature on the front of the Daily Mirror, which queries comments made by the Prime Minister about rising energies, doctor strikes being blamed for waiting lists. The Metro uh, remar uh, carries remarks by the Prime Minister that a general election is unlikely to take place before January 2025, while the Daily Express adds a warning from Mr Sunak that the pay offer on the table for doctors uh, is final. So a number of different um, uh, interesting items on the front of the newspapers and the headline of the newspapers today. Absolutely. There's another news from Niger. It's the first UK national safely out of the country, Foreign Minister says. The first group of British nationals have safely left Niger on a French flight to Paris, the Foreign Office has said. It gave no further details on how many Britons were on the plane, but said a very small number remain in Niger. Violence has broken out in the West African country following last week's military coup. France and Italy have, had already started evacuating their citizens. The UK government had previously advised British nationals to register their whereabouts and stay indoors. There were believed to be fewer than 100 British nationals in Niger. The first to be evacuated were those who had requested to leave Niger and were able to make their way to the airport in time for the flights. A statement from the Foreign Office said the UK's ambassador and a core team remain in Niger to support the very small number of British nationals who are still there. We are grateful to the French for their help in this evacuation. A German citizens in Niger who are also thought to be number fewer than 100, have been urged to leave uh, the country aboard planes organized by France, while the Spanish government said it's uh, preparing to evacuate around 70 of its citizens. Uh, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, who is currently in Ni Nigeria as part of a three-country tour of Africa, said early on Wednesday, the UK's government's priority remains the safety of British nationals and helping them get out of the country to safety. The coup has promoted demonstrations against France, the former colonial power in Niger with the French embassy coming under attack. So early on Wednesday, 262 people arrived in Paris from Niger, while Italy has also organized a flight which arrived in Rome with 87 people. So that is some news from Niger and we do hope that um, if people who do want to leave, they come back to their country safely and everyone sort of remains safe. Absolutely. Um, I mean, whenever I hear these kind of news, uh, slightly alarming news, I would say, where people are struggling or there's some sort of trial that is being faced by individuals or a group of people, it always reminds me of this fact. And in fact, my, opin my opinion, that I have, the conclusion that I have come to is that the further you are from faith, the more problems you probably have. 
and this is what you see um, in society today that those uh, I should say countries or people who are far away from faith maybe they don't know their rights towards their fellow being uh, which have been laid out by a religion so perfectly um, and clearly and that's why you would probably see uh, individuals or whether it is individuals or communities who are uh, very close to religion that they would have uh, less problems they would know their limits and what to do what not to do absolutely uh, yeah and we do have time for one item for sports as usual we can't leave out the sports and there are a lot of transfers happening but uh, i mean the headlines are the saudi pro league as uh, so the saudi pro league's remarkable spending spree on players is set to continue they said according to one of its leading executives um, he said, I think the budgets are in place for a number of years. You know, I, I don't see this slowing down. The um, SPL has learned some of the world's biggest names since a five-time Ballon d'Or winner Cristiano Ronaldo joined in January from Manchester United. Uh, they include former Real Madrid striker Karim Benzema, Liverpool former captain Jordan Henderson and established players from Chelsea, Man City and Bayern Munich. In addition to last month, Al Hilal made a world record bid of a 259 million for Paris Saint Germain forward Kylian Mbappe. Uh, speaking to the BBC editor Dan Ron in a wide-ranging interview, and the Saudi story, he said it was n not necessary a bad thing if European football was not as strong as it has been. Uh, City manager Pep Guardiola has said the Saudi Pro League financial power has changed the market for transfers and allied clubs need to be aware of what is happening. While Liverpool counterpart Jurgen Klopp, uh, Jurgen Klopp has expressed concern about the transfer window being late in Saudi. So we, we do have some big names going to Saudi and let's see what happens with the re remaining transfer saga. Dear listeners, you're listening to The Breakfast Show. Stay tuned, we'll be back after a short break. نحمد الله المعين Azrat Mirza Majroo Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate, the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the holy founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, continues the work of the holy founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Love for all, hatred for none. Those words from your third Khalifa are more important, more crucial, more essential today than they have ever been. And of course, the Ahmadi have always practiced 
this peace-loving philosophy. I am gladdened and inspired by the fact that the Ahmadis not only preach a message of love, friendship and understanding, but practice it fully in the way you include and invite others to share your gathering. An injunction to love all and to hate none is the avowed guiding principle of the Ahmadi life. I would thank you also that you have stressed uh, the importance of showing that Islam is the religion of peace, not the religion of hate, uh, as it was stated on the wall in the Yalsa, love for all, hatred for none. I think that is the message that the world really needs. You understand at a profound level that promoting religious freedom is an essential building block for peace and stability here and throughout the world. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. Love for all, hatred for none, is the message that we see in this mosque and from the Ahmadiyya Association. Your people have been the leaders in taking the peace movement that one step further. The huge respect we have, we all have, for your work day by day in making a reality of peace and brotherhood across the communities in this country and across the world. I think the words that you said uh, to my colleagues in the House of Commons ring probably a little truer, but hopefully a little more hopefully than they did when you actually said it in the House a few weeks ago. His Holiness began his address by speaking of the great conflicts that divide the world today. Wars have been fought in different parts of the world. He worried of even greater problems. He then went on and said, it is my fear that in my view of the direction in which things are moving today, the political and economic dynamics of the countries of the world may lead to world war. Therefore, it is the duty of the superpowers to sit down and find a solution to save humanity from the brink of disaster. They were words, Your Holiness, I think, they were taken very seriously by all who were there at that meeting. Wherever the movement has been established, it endeavors to exert a constructive influence of Islam through social projects, educational institutes, health services, Islamic publications, and the construction of mosques. These endeavors continue, despite the bitter persecution that the community suffers in some countries. We need all the goodness we can find in today's world. And I applaud you for your contribution in Britain and worldwide to community cohesion and the enjoyment of diversity that is such a precious asset. And wherever Ahmadis live in the world, you are renowned for enthusiastically participating in the larger community and peacefully living, living alongside people of all faiths, languages, and cultures. And I would like to pay an additional tribute to the work being done by Ahmadis in raising standards in Africa and particularly in education. Yes, Britain has welcomed the headquarters of the Ahmadis in this country, but it hasn't become something that's become, as it were, a closed sect in Britain. It's become a community that has sought to reach out to all of us. And that's very important because the best way to break down the barriers of misunderstanding and prejudice is for that contact to happen, and I thank you for that. The Ahmadiyya community contribute hugely to interfaith forums, 
to the richness of our community, and that is the same that's reflected across our nation. But what I would like to pay tribute to you as well this evening is the contribution that you make to wider society, the important charitable causes that you support, not just for your own communities, but for the wider communities. And that is to be acclaimed and that is to be applauded. A very warm welcome back to all of our listeners at The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam. We will we were discussing the news items and the weather before we headed off to the break. We will get straight into our first segment now. And uh, Brother Asim, would you give us the gist of the story? Absolutely. So we are starting off with the first segment, which is leading by example. President Pandravoski walks with Bulilka to school. The gist of the story is that President Stevo Pandravoski held Ambla Adami's hand as he walked her to the elementary school in the city of Kostiwa on Monday. I believe that's in Macedonia. Uh, Ambla has experienced bullying at school due as a result of having Down syndrome, a genetic condition that causes learning disabilities, health problems and distinctive facial characteristics. A spokesperson for the president office told CNN his office released a press release which highlighted how children like Ambla should enjoy the rights they deserve, feel equal and welcome at school, how the common mi- mission is empathy and help learn from children like Ambla how to rejoice, share and be solidarity. Uh, absolutely, and we will clear, obviously be looking into um, the background of the story and uh, how uh, and what kind of disabilities people encounter, and most of all, uh, most importantly, the Islamic angle, uh, what Islam has, the teachings that Islam has given with regards to this. But before that, uh, I would like to head off to our first um, guest. Uh, we have uh, Linda James with us. Uh, Linda, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Linda James is the founder and CEO of Bullies Out. She established Bullies Out in 2006 after her youngest son was badly bullied at school. Um, it is one of the most dedicated and, and ambitious anti-bullying charities uh, through their uh, innovative and interactive workshops and training programs they use uh, their experience energy and passion to focus on awareness uh, prevention uh, building empathy and positive peer relationships all of which are crucial in creating a nourishing environment in which young people and adults can thrive Uh, their vision is to empower and inspire children young people and adults to overcome bullying behavior so, uh, Linda, firstly, could you kindly tell us how you view the story of President Provosky walking a bullied child with special needs to school? Um, I think like anything that shows kindness, it's, it's inspiring. Um, and, it, and it does make a real positive stand against bullying behaviour. Mm-hmm. And it lets the person, so it let Embla and her family know that they were being supported and listened to. And that's really important when a person is being bullied. Um, So the president uh, not only did that to the family, but they helped raise awareness of a societal issue that affects so many people. And he raised awareness of how important it is 
that, you know, inclusion is vital. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter where we're from, what we like, what we do. Inclusion. It's all about inclusion. It's all about in kind, a, a kindness and acceptance. And that is what we should all adhere to do for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we did, the world would be a much better place, wouldn't it? Um, because bullying is just, it, it's horrendous. It's hurtful. It's painful. It's spiteful. Mm-hmm. And it has sorts of negative effects. So by doing something like that, what he did really did stand out and supported the family, but also helped raise awareness. Right. And uh, I guess uh, whether it's uh, visible or non-visible disabilities, can we say that both people uh, get bullied, both type of groups? Mm, absolutely. Bullying has no bounds, no bounds at all. It affects anybody, everybody and anybody. It, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you have a disability or not. It, it, it just does not matter. Um, you know, if a person wants to display bullying behavior, then they will do that. And they will pick on a person regardless. Um, and sometimes they will say, oh, well, you know, if you have a disability or if you wear glasses or a certain color hair or if this happens or that happens, you stand out more. But it, it's because of the person displaying the behavior. They will pick on that person because of something they have perceived as different. Um, and, and it's what's in that per- the, the bully's mind, not if the person being bullied. You know, it's not what mm-hmm. they're just It's the bully and how they're feeling. So anyone and everyone can be bullied. Right. And uh, I'm guessing, just like myself, most people would like to know what is the root cause of bullying? For example, is it um, based on arrogance or misconception or anything else? Uh, I think, you know, um, we we have to look at the root causes. And in probably, I would say, 95% of the cases that we've worked with, the people displaying the behavior are doing so because there's an issue within their life. Now, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right at all because bullying behavior is wrong. Mm-hmm. However, they're retaliating for some reason. So that could be a traumatic home life and they're lashing out. It could be because they're being bullied themselves and so they're retaliating by picking on another. And some young people tell us that they go into schools with the I'll be a bully rather than be bullied mentality. Um, so they would they think that by being the bully, then other bullies will leave them alone. But we know that that's not the case. But whatever the reason, it's wrong. Um, so that's why we work with those displaying the behavior as well, because we have to stop that cycle. We have to help them to understand that their attitude behavior is not right. And we have to help change those attitudes and behavior. Otherwise, we'll never stop that cycle. Absolutely. Uh, Linda, uh, could you please tell us more about your charity work and campaigning? Absolutely. Um, and so, as, as you explained earlier, um, we were founded in 2006. And, you know, we work across the UK um, with individuals, schools, youth settings, the workplace, 
and we provide anti-bullying workshops, training, um, we provide uh, activities, resources, counselling and mentoring and our aim is just to educate, raise awareness, provide support and try to change attitudes and behaviours. Um, because, you know, we want to provide nurturing and create nurturing environments so that young people and adults can thrive and reach their, their true potential. Um, we want to empower people, we want to inspire them, and we just want the world to just generally be a kinder, more empathic place to be. You know, if you don't like a person, that's fine. We're not going to get on with everyone we meet. Mm-hmm. Move on, move away. You don't have to be horrible to a person. Mm-hmm. Just move away. If you have a difference of opinion, then talk about it. That's healthy. Don't pick on somebody because of it. You know, difference of opinions can be really healthy. If you come from different cultures, talk about it, discuss it, find out about each other. Don't bully because of it. There's absolutely no need to be horrible to each other. There really, really isn't. Um, and, and through our work, this is what we're trying to do, is create those nurturing, kind environments. That's um, amazing. I totally agree with all your points. On, we'll keep on doing that. That's amazing. Uh, so, Linda, last question is that, you know, considering the extensive work done by charities and focus on awareness, uh, but why do we sti- still see stories, you know, of bullying making headlines? Because we still have humans. <laughs> and I think as each generation is born and they grow and, you know, this this will happen. Um, and in some cases, it's learned behavior. Uh, other times, it's challenging behavior. And as we said earlier, things happen to a person, so they display the behavior. But, you know, whatever the reason, they're, they're hu- we're human beings and some people will keep displaying that behavior. And mm-hmm. if each generation and then that cycle will start again. But whatever the reason, this is why we have to keep talking about it, we have to keep working at it, raising awareness, providing support, and making that difference. And, you know, if we can keep making the difference for those who need us and providing that support and getting them through what they're going through, then we can keep helping people and helping those to go on to lead you know, their lives and not be blighted by bullying behavior. And then we can start the cycle again with the next group and the next group and the next group and keep on. And yes, we'll always have bullying, but then hopefully there will always be organizations like ours who will just keep on and on and on and keep working. And whilst we'll never eradicate it completely, we can change attitudes and we can change behaviors and we can provide support. And by doing that, we will make positive difference and that's what we'll keep on doing uh linda james thank you very much for taking your time out and talking to us today and uh, uh talking to us about your experience and the excellent work you're doing for uh, uh this um, problem that so many people are facing once again thank you so much you're very welcome thank you for having me thank you thank you that was linda james the founder and ceo of uh, bullies out doing excellent work and i think a lot of people would be pleased and happy to hear especially a lot of parents would be so pleased and happy to hear that uh, people 
like Linda uh, are trying to make this world a better place and are working not just for themselves but for others uh, and sacrificing their time and putting in so much effort in to um, remove bullying uh, from, uh, from, from, from such a young uh, stage. Um, Brother Asim, looking at the uh, story, uh, what, I mean, is the most important, what's the importance <clears throat> of not judging those with uh, a disability and how can we ensure that people are included fully in society and community? Because I think to include people fully in society and community is the baseline or accepting somebody, in other words, is the baseline of actually having a society. That's what a society is. Absolutely. So a disability is when, you know, someone has an impairment which limits their functioning uh, senses, uh, mobility, uh, or poses physical, logical difficulties. So according to research by SCOPE, a disability equality charity in England and Wales, three out of four disabled people have experienced negative attitudes or behaviors in the last five years, and that nine out of ten disabled people who had experienced negative attitudes or behavior said it had a negative effect on their daily lives. Mm -hmm. So that is a big ratio, 9 out of 10 disabled people have it had a negative effect on their daily lives. Right. So um, we will be listening to a short audio clip of uh, Hanif Khan discussing contemporary social issues with a panel of experts uh, talking about um, these uh, things when it comes to disabilities and uh, these uh, difficulties that people face. So let's see what Hanifan has to say. And Fiona, when we were talking earlier about your own personal life experience of before you actually got into playing para badminton, um, what was it like then and, and what is it like now? In, in, in relation to... Before you were playing uh, like a sport, getting involved mm -hmm. with a sport and having a, a passion about something. Obviously yeah. you went through a transition, didn't yes. you, with your own self? I, I gradually became more disabled quite rapidly within just a few years and I became very depressed. I was housebound because I couldn't get out and I was very low, like suicidal low. And all it took was getting my chair. Two weeks later I was on the court and it changed my life completely. Like depression was almost gone completely. I feel good about myself. I can do something. And it just felt great to do something that I used to do when I was able. Yeah. It felt so good. Uh, that's really good. Yeah. Right, that was Hanif Khan speaking to um, uh, one of the experts with the Welsh today. Uh, Brother Asim, I'm guessing a lot of people would be wondering why do we keep on hearing repetitive cases of bullying? Why, what is the reason? Why is it in every level in every society Especially with children, why? What is the reason? So um, basically, Scope believes that the negative attitudes and stereotypes towards disabled people are a root cause of the inequality faced by disabled people in society. Basically, disabled people and their families experience a range of different attitudes and behaviors, such as uh, making assumptions or judging their capability, 
accusations or, or faking their impairment or not being uh, disabled and you know staring or giving looks uh, sometimes disabled people also experience verbal uh, or even physical abuse due to their impairments so according to scope the negative attitudes towards them are varied but uh, were mostly frequently experienced with the public and on public transport and the most commonly reported case were from management at work and from benefit assessors when accessing the benefit system. So negative attitudes towards disabled people are still too common from occasional looks to more severe accusations and verbal or even physical abuse. So all of these factors contribute to make disabled people feel isolated, lonely and withdrawn from society. But the government and individuals and disabled disability organizations and campaigners need to work together to find a solution to this problem by raising awareness of this issue and thus help improve attitudes more. Right, absolutely. And just like most of our listeners will be wondering uh, what the um, what Islam has actually said about this. Because Islam is the baseline of all societies, uh, all morals, of all goodness. All, all goodness came from Islamic teachings. This is what I personally believe, from religion at least. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Islam being the f- final uh, religion. Um, so in, if you look at the Holy Quran, uh, the Quran clearly states that you know, God has created different groups of people in different ways and there's different levels of society. Uh, it is said in chapter 6, verse 66, Say he has power to send punishment upon you from above you and from beneath your feet or to uh, confound you by spitting you into sects and make you taste the violence of one another. See how we expound the signs in various ways that they may understand. Uh, In chapter 30, verse 55, it is stated, It is Allah who created you in a state of weakness and after weakness gave you strength then after strength caused weakness and old age he creates what he pleases he is the all-knowing the all-powerful uh, in chapter 48 verse 12 Allah says O ye who believe let not one people deride another people happily they may be better than they nor let one group of women deride other women happily they may be better than they and do not defame your people or call one another by nicknames it is an evil thing to be called bad names after having believed and those who repent not such are wrongdoers so the quran the quran clearly has stated that um, society is created by different groups of people with different backgrounds and different abilities as well as uh, some shortcomings you should not, under no circumstances, if you're a believer and you want to act upon the teachings of the Quran, make fun or mock somebody in any way, uh, let alone their um, disabilities or weaknesses. Uh, the Holy Prophet, founder of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, always um, gave the best teachings when it came to problems in society. Or religion or faith. In fact, if we look at his sermon at the year of his passing at Hajjatul Wada, and 
we will come to the conclusion that, that, that the best statement ever to have been made when it comes to societal rules, to morals or to any sorts of limitations and uh, uh, laws that can be set out in a society it has been mentioned in that uh, speech Absolutely. at the Hajjat al-Wida. The Holy Prophet at one occasion said, Save yourselves from thinking ill of others, for this is the greatest falsehood, and do not be inquisitive, inquisitive to apply uh, epithets to each other out of content, nor be envious of each other, and do not entertain ill feelings towards each other. Let each of you regard himself as a servant of God, and treat others as his brothers, as God has commanded. And also remember that every Muslim is a brother to every Muslim. No Muslim should trespass against another or desert another in times of distress or look down upon another on account of his lack of sustenance or learning or any other thing. Purity springs from the heart and it is through to defile a man's heart that he should look down upon his brother. Every Muslim regard another Muslim's life honor and property as sacred and inviolate. God does not regard your bodies, nor your countenance, nor your external actions, but looks into your hearts. So, um, I believe, as far as I remember, this was uh, one portion of that uh, speech, or at least the same um, points have been mentioned uh, in that sermon that um, I was mentioning uh, earlier on. And the Holy Prophet in very minute details has laid out so perfectly uh, how we should be in societies and how not and it's also the Islamic teaching is also a reminder of us to us that um, having the lack of something can be a problem or can be suffering or can be a disability and having and the and and having that something would 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 be not it's, it's like darkness is the absence of light and light is the absence of darkness and that's uh, what the islamic teachings that we have been given uh, nobody should have the right to think just because they have something or they're physically fine or they have money or wealth a house or a car that they are better than anybody else because there will be somebody who will be even better than them and clear, clearly there will be people who will be worse than them. And the only reason they have that blessing or they feel that blessing is because there are people who uh, don't have that uh, blessing. It's like you cannot have light without darkness. There needs to be darkness for you to have light. Dear listeners, we are approaching the 8 o'clock news. Uh, and with that, we are coming to an end to our first segment, so stay tuned. Writings of the Promised Messiah, salam. I call to Allah to witness that the Holy Qur'an is a rare pearl. Its outside is light, and its inside is light, and its above is light, and its below is light. And there is light in every word of it. It is a spiritual garden whose clustered fruits are within easy reach and through which streams flow. Every fruit of good fortune is found in it and every torch is lit from it. 
Its light has penetrated to my heart, and I could not have acquired it by any other means. And Allah is my witness that if there had been no Qur'an, I would have found no delight in life. I find it that its beauty exceeds that of a hundred thousand Josephs. I incline towards it with a great inclination and drink it into my heart. It has nurtured me as an embryo is nurtured and it has a wonderful effect on my heart. Myself is lost in its beauty. It has been disclosed to me in a vision that the garden of holiness is irrigated by the water of the Holy Quran, which is a surging ocean of the water of life. He who drinks from it comes to life. Indeed, he brings others to life. Hazrat Umar radiallahu anhu was known for his great governance. He would often patrol the streets at night to ensure nobody was left suffering unduly. On one occasion, he was walking in the dark and he heard some children crying. Attracted by the sound, he went to the tent from which it came. Whenever he got to the tent, he saw a woman sitting before a fire. It appeared the woman was cooking something while her small children sat crying nearby. It was late for the children to have their meal. Umar, stepped up to the woman and inquired, What is in the pot on the fire? She explained that she had no food to give the children and had placed the pot full of water and stones on the fire in order to give them the impression that the food would be ready. Hazrat Umar was distressed to hear this. He hurried back to the state store, picked up a bag of flour, meat, cooking oil, and some dates, and rushed back to the tent. His servant begged him to let him carry the load, but he refused, saying, It is my responsibility. You will not carry my burden on the day of judgment. Arriving at the tent, he delivered the provisions to the woman and told her to prepare the meal. In the meantime, the children, so exhausted, had fallen asleep. Hazrat Umar radiallahu anhu waited until the meal was fully prepared and the children were awakened and fed. The woman thanked him for his kindness and by way of expressing gratitude said, it would be far better if you were the Khalifa of the Muslims rather than that Umar who is not aware of the condition of his people. Hazrat Umar radiallahu anhu said, well mother, Umar may not be so bad after all. A very warm welcome back to all of our listeners to the Breakfast Show at the Voice of Islam. I would just like to remind all of our listeners to make sure you call in because this show will only be a success with your input. Make sure to call us on 0208-687-7878. Tweet us at Voice of Islam. You can for the break we were just we had just finished off our first segment now we're heading off to our second segment what are we looking into with this segment so the second segment is uh, dehumanizing the arrival of migrants and immigrants the gist of the story is that the home office ordered the removal of child friendly murals from the controversial um, manston detention camp near ramsgate as well as a separate reception center. 
this has happened at, at two migrant centers. The artist is also preparing a child book with the illustrations. So, uh, what really is um, an overview, I guess, for just for our listeners, is that at the start of the year, Sky News reported a record of 45,000 plus people crossing the English Channel to the UK on small boats in 2022. This is more than 60% uh, than last year as immigrants as migrants continued to risk their lives in making the dangerous journey. The Migration Observatory at University of Oxford informs us how in 2019, 6%, so that's 896,000 of children under the age of 18 living in the UK were born abroad. Half of those children were born in EU countries. Now, a lot of our listeners, or very likely most of our listeners are probably wondering, what happens at these centres when uh, migrants arrive? And um, before we head uh, to that uh, and look into that, we I am pleased to introduce you to our uh, um, second caller, uh, Hannah Haycox. A very warm welcome to you. Good morning. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for being on the show. So, Hannah is a researcher of refugee and asylum policy at UCL, and uh, he, she is, uh, an, in her expertise, mainly in relation to refugees, re uh, settlements, programs in the UK, and the use of hotels and accommodation asylum seekers. Uh, firstly, I would like to ask you, how do you view the story uh, where the painting of Mickey Mouse was removed from the migrant center? Hmm. Well, I think it's important to start by remembering that this reception center is for unaccompanied children who often arrive traumatized and scared. And I do see this as part of a broader hostile environment policy that aims to make people seeking asylum feel unwelcome. And it is another example of how the government tries to deter people from arriving in the UK. But actually, when people are given support, when they are welcomed, I've been lucky enough to speak to people displaced from Syria who have arrived in the UK, who've been welcomed. And there are amazing stories of people being able to rebuild their lives I've spoken to one woman who opened a Syrian dessert shop that was very popular in the community. So I think that what I'm trying to stress in this case is that we need to ensure that people who arrive are given protection. That's amazing. So, uh, Hannah, uh, in situations such as uh, migration, uh, how does it impact young adults and children in comparison to adults? Yes, so as, as in any family, children's needs will differ from adults' needs, um, mainly, of course, educational support, access to schools. But one thing I do want to stress is the impact that the illegal migration bill will have on children seeking asylum, because this has just been passed and made law. And what it does is it denies people the right to seek asylum in the UK. And legal experts have said 
that this will lead to more child trafficking and exploitation in the UK. So I think what we really need is to ensure that there is protection and wraparound support for all asylum seekers, both adults and children. And that does include, of course, unaccompanied children, such as those um, that arrived in the Kent Detention Reception Centre. Right. Um, uh, how can we help uh, you know, people understand the migration crisis better? Yes. So I think I'd like to make three points, if I may. So I think, firstly, we need to ensure that people have access to safe routes to seek asylum. So we need to immediately expand resettlement programs. But we also need to ensure that people who arrive via the more irregular routes, so via small boats, for example, that they are also able to seek asylum in the UK. And it's important to remember that seeking asylum in the UK is protected under international law. So the UK is bound by international law, the 1951 Geneva Convention and the 1967 Protocol, to actually provide asylum to people. So I think they're the main three points I want to make today about the um, the responses of the UK to asylum seekers. Right. Um, uh, another question is that, is it really that bad if a migrant centre is welcoming? No, not at all. I think it's so important. I don't think you can overstate the importance of a welcome for people who, as I said, often arrive uh, with nothing. They often arrive scared. And I've been so fortunate um, to speak to some amazing people from Syria who have been welcomed. And of course, this varies between um, different people's experiences. But I have heard stories of neighbors bringing gifts for children and games for them to play with. And that has really helped them to settle in to their new lives. And I think it really does show a two-tier system of treatment where these children arriving to these reception centers are really subject to hostile policies. All right. Um, uh, an important question is that um, mm. uh, why do some people have like a negative perception of migrants? I think that a lot of the time in terms of the negative perception, mm -hmm. there is a lot of stigma that people face in arriving to the UK and I do want to stress that the most important thing is to recognize how people who come to the UK who sought asylum they are trying to rebuild their lives they have skills they have so many things to contribute to the UK but I think that we need to ensure that we are recognizing the amazing contributions that people who sought asylum in the UK make in this country. Sure. So could you tell us, us a bit about more of some challenges the migrants face when they arrive in, in, a, like in a new, new country? Yes, of course. So I think, again, the Illegal Migration Bill will be the biggest challenge that people will face in this country for those seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. And that's really because it will deny people the right to seek asylum so that when they arrive they'll immediately be threatened to be deported. Mm -hmm. And this, again, will subject many unaccompanied children to the risks of trafficking. So I think 
the main challenge is recognising the human cost that these policies that the UK government is imposing have new people. So I think just the most important thing is to ensure that safe routes are expanded so people can travel to the UK without having to risk their lives, but also that for people who have no choice but to risk their lives, that they're able to be protected when they arrive in the UK. And finally, that we ensure that we have welcoming services upon arrival for people who have been displaced. Hannah, thank you so much for being with us this morning at The Breakfast Show and uh, talking to us about uh, your experience and sharing uh, your knowledge with us. And uh, most certainly not the last time, hope to speak to you again very soon. Thank you once again. Thank you so much and thank you to your listeners. Thank you. That was uh, Hannah Haycox a researcher on refugee and asylum policy at the UCL. Um, Brother Asim, we were just discussing what happens at migrant centres when they arrive. Yes, absolutely. So uh, par- uh, Parliament uh, is a current, you know, discussing the illegal migration bill, which uh, passed its second uh, reading in the House of Commons. Uh, by 312 votes to 250, it must still pass through the House of Lords. Uh, the main points covered uh, basically in this bill are that the Home Secretary can decide to either detain or remove refugees arriving in the UK illegally via boat and send them to Rwanda or another third country, um, third world country that has been uh, deemed safe, even if it's not clear that. Uh, you know, that it might be. Refugees must be detained for at least 28 days without the possibility of bail. Every refugee that has been denied asylum and removed from the country cannot uh, attempt to return or request British British citizenship. There's a maximum number of refugees that can settle in the UK uh, to be specified at a later date. So th- these are uh, things that are happening when um, at, at migrant centres. Absolutely, and um, with regards to some good support that migrants r- receive, uh, I'd just like to point out that um, in terms of support, migrants after seeking asylum are provided housing uh, that could be in a flat housing house hostel or even bed and breakfast, some cash support too, and extra support for mothers and children. They may also get free NHS service, and children aged 15 to 17 years are required to attend school. And um, with regards to the Islamic teachings, I think this takes us back once again to um, what the Holy Prophet, the founder of Islam, Muhammad, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said at a, the ver- very, very historic speech at his last Hajj, known as the Hajjatul Vida. And he has laid down foundations for all uh, societies and all morals. And at one point, he said that all humans, regardless of their background, are equals as humans. There is no superiority for a white person over a black person and neither is the, the black superior to the white. No Arab 
has superiority above a non-Arab and a non-Arab has superiority above an Arab. Uh, the third caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmad, may God have mercy on him, on his soul, uh, he coined a very good slogan, which has become the slogan of our community. And it says, love for all, hatred for none. Anywhere around the world where you would go to our mosques, our mission houses, our functions, our, peace, our conferences, our conventions, anywhere you go, any meetings, you would see this slogan. And this is the foundation and the base of our community and uh, its teachings. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he said that I do not like the words of those who limit their compassion to their own ethnicity. I advise you again and again to never, ever restrict your sphere of compassion. At another occasion he stated, you should en extend compassion to all of God's creation, as if you are their blood relatives, just like mothers are with their children. One who does good with a natural passion like that of a mother can never be ostentatious. So, this is very interesting and it also reminds me of the fact that if you know somebody who's a religious person in your circle of friends or any religious person that you have probably have come across, somebody who's practicing religion and he's a practicing believer, you'd notice that these people are very likely to be helpful towards others. They would go out of their way to help others, people they like, uh, people they, whether they know them or not, or um, whether, uh, it, regardless of their ethnicity, background, color, their relationship with that individual, they would go out of their way and uh, help them, and they wouldn't leave any single opportunity to, uh, you know, to help them. And you would, or a person would wonder, how come, and why, and uh, what is the reason behind it? And it all comes down to your belief in God. If you truly believe that God exists, you will find ways, all sorts of ways to please Him and attain His pleasure. And I think it's very important to think about the existence of God with this regard as well. And when you come across these pious people, they are an excellent example and they are manifesting the true meaning of the existence of God when they go out of their way to help people. And we were just discuss discussing the Islamic perspective where Islam has said regardless of an individual's eth ethnicity, background, skin color, social level, you are all equal at the end of the day. Absolutely. Even if you can see um, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that in a hadith it says that greet a person even if you know or if you don't know him mm -hmm. so this shows that uh, uh, how much we support equality in all humans and don't differentiate in any race or anything absolutely the holy quran on another occasion has said that you should give people their due rights and the, it's very important to understand the quran has mentioned its due rights at the end of the day, 
everyone is is like uh, it, it, it's a it's a creation of God first and foremost. That's what we need to remember. And being religious means to be godly, and to be godly means to have godly attributes. And that's why you see um, some people they would just go out of their way to help others and be kind towards others. They wouldn't judge anybody, even if somebody's ill or bad towards them. Absolutely. I mean, Islam teaches us that uh, like for your brother what you like for yourself. So this is a really important that we just don't treat others um, in a bad way, but we treat others how we want to be treated as well. Absolutely. An excellent uh, point to conclude our second segment on. Dear listeners, you're still listening to The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam. Stay tuned. We will be back after a short break. Allah has decreed most surely I will prevail I and my messengers Verily, Allah is powerful, mighty. The Arabic expression Al-Aziz means the mighty, one who is dominant that cannot be dominated, one who is powerful and superior over all else. Al-Aziz is that striking being who alone has the power to bestow prophethood upon man and to guide mankind towards righteousness. It is this eminent attribute of Allah that has allowed great prophets of the past to succeed in their respective missions. The chief of all prophets, the holy prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was undoubtedly the most cherished recipient of God's limitless favors. At the dawn of the victory of Mecca, the Muslims marched wholeheartedly. After being betrayed by their treaty-bound brothers, this was a day where the inhabitants of Mecca witnessed God's might. The reign of cruelty, which had caused the followers of Islam unimaginable agony, was brought to an abrupt end. The peaceful conquest of Mecca was made possible only through God and His might. Allah's might is widely experienced by all prophets of this world. The promised Messiah on whom be peace came at a time when people had become void of morality and were ruled by Mulvis and extremists who no one dared to oppose. The promised Messiah on whom be peace expressed that at the time of his claim not many believed in him. In fact, he faced an onslaught of ignorance, hatred, 
and ridicule. The promised Messiah on whom be peace faced numerous fatwas and false court cases were made against him. In these moments, it seemed almost impossible that the promised Messiah on whom be peace and his godly mission would prevail. But it was the might Al-Aziz that silenced the jesters, created love where there had been hatred, and brought justice in times of unfairness. Al-Aziz stood like a mountain safeguarding the promised Messiah on whom be peace from all forms of harm. This was the might of the powerful God that enabled his devout servant to reign over his opponents and to once again radiate the ever-bright light of Islam upon the darkened world. Al-Aziz is the great altruistic God whose power is dominant over all others. His might is a magnificent sign of the truth of his prophets and their prevalence is evidence of his existence. This world would not be as it is without the mighty creator. It has been written and proven time and time again that he will prevail. How then can one deny his flourishing superiority? So is the Ahmadiyya Khilafat a dictatorship? The simple answer is no, it is not a dictatorship. This question can be raised by two types of people. You've got one who are religious and those who are irreligious. If it's the religious people who are raising this question, then this question or this allegation simply backfires to any other prophet who ever existed and any of their successors because our system of Khilafat is no different to the divine leadership that they followed. When irreligious people ask this question, then it should be understood and it should be explained that when we talk about organized religion, unfortunately, there is this impression around the world that in an organized religion, you don't have the freedom to do what you want. You have to follow certain rules and regulations and um, you're, you're bound by a lot of uh, laws. And when a leader comes into the equation, it becomes even more, you know, uh, something to worry about. So to such irreligious people, it should be made clear that when we accept the Khalifa, we do so willingly. When we perform the pledge of obedience to the Khalifa al-Masih, we're not only pledging our obedience to Khalifa al-Masih, but in fact, it's actually pledging our obedience to God Almighty. And we do so willingly. There is no coercion and there cannot be any coercion in that sort of a pledge that you make. Now, another thing that needs to be borne in mind is that a dictator is someone whose say and want and desire, it goes without any question. No one can challenge it. No one questions it. And uh, people tend to accept it as it is. And the dictator does not allow anyone to give suggestions or proposals. But we see the Ahmadiyya Khilafat to follow the very basic Islamic injunction, which is to uh, consult them in important matters or the other in Quranic verse, which uh, says, that whose affairs are dealt with through mutual consultation. This verse is a description of the believers and we find that Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih, he consults various administrative bodies when making important decisions to do with the administration of the community or matters to do with faith itself. 
Now the Holy Quran is complete. The Islamic teachings are complete and perfect. They don't require any further addition. But the reason we have a Khilafat is because the implementation of Islamic teachings in every passing day requires some form of interpretation. So whether we're talking about the era of social media, the era of the internet, or the era that we uh, are experiencing nowadays, which is a global pandemic, we require some form of interpretation and direction in implementation. And that we get from the divinely guided leadership of Khalifatul Masih. A dictator tends not to keep a close bond with their followers. They don't tend to keep a very close tie with their subjects. But the Khalifatul Masih has a very close and personal relationship with each and every Ahmadi Muslim around the world. The Khalifatul Masih writes to his followers. The Khalifatul Masih meets with his followers almost on a daily basis. And this is something which the Khalifa does to ensure that his followers are well and that they're pursuing the highest goals possible in every sphere of life. So is the Ahmadiyya Khilafat a dictatorship? The answer is no. It is not a dictatorship. It is far from such a thing. The Ahmadiyya Khilafat is such a leadership which the world is very unfamiliar with because there is no equivalent that can be drawn or parallel that can be drawn to it in the world that we know today. But the Ahmadiyya Khilafat is something that the world is in desperate need of. A very warm welcome back to all of our listeners to The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam. And once again, I would like to take this opportunity to remind all of our listeners that this show is your show and cannot be a success without your input. So make sure to give us a call on 0208-687-7878 and tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We obviously want your input and to make this show a success, most of all, your input will be required. And we had a very interesting second segment that came to an end just before the break. Now we're heading off to our third and last uh, segment. Absolutely. So the last segment is South Asian Heritage Month 2023. So the background info is that um, this was co-founded by Jasveer Singh and Benita Kane in 2019. The idea originated in response to the 17th century of the events of 1947, namely India's independence and the creation of Pakistan and the partition. So during the year there was a strong sense among South Asians of wanting to reclaim their identity and learn about their collective history. So this symbolizes the celebration of South Asian identity and aims to challenge stereotypes, misogyny, racism and other forms of discrimination prevalent within society. It provides a platform for South Asians to share their stories, histories and cultural heritage, fostering understanding and appreciation. So uh, the South Asian Heritage Month focuses on uh, uh, the history of it. In fact, focuses on several countries, including India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Bhutan and Maldives. Uh, the countries in South Asia have unique uh, hist histories of formation. India and Pakistan were created in 1947 as independent nations after gaining independence from British colonial rule. Afghanistan, Nepal, Bhutan and the Maldives have ancient histories and were not co co colonized by the British, though they faced various influences from neighboring empires. Bangladesh was initially a part of Pakistan but later in independence 
1971. Um, a notable aspect of the South Asian uh, of South Asia is known for its diverse cultures, languages, religions, and traditions. It has rich um, history of ancient civilizations such as the Indus Valley Civilization. Um, the region has witnessed the rise of and fall of numerous empires, including the Maurya, Gupta, Mughal, and British empires, which have left significant cultures and legacies. Thank you very much. So I believe we have a, a guest on for this segment. Um, it is uh, Taryn Khanam BEM, uh, who is a chair of uh, Brit Bangla, a platform for future leaders and change makers, aims to develop leadership and empowerment to advance the dynamic Bengali community. Um, Taryn is a passionate advocate for improving the female talent pipeline and is strong on empowering women. Taryn was awarded Queen's Honours for her service to diversity in governments and the Bengali community, where she serves on multiple charity and non-profit boards. Taryn received the British Community Honours Award for her outstanding contribution to the welfare and inter integration of minority communities into mainstream British society. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome, thank you. Thank you very much, Tyron, for joining. Um, so our first uh, question is that um, South Asian Heritage Month, what does that mean to you? Well, thank you for explaining what the South Asian Heritage Month, I mean, it's only recently we're starting to celebrate this in the last three years. It was launched in 2020. So it really gives a colourful, it gives a really great platform for our colourful South Asian history and allows us to share our individual stories and this year's theme is stories to tell. And as you said, it's about reclaiming the history and identity of our British Asian, of British South Asian. And as you know, it's really important for us to know that South Asia has both culture, diversity. So many countries around the world like to emphasize the food, the clothing, language, and more, and all the things that have been shared. So we can be proud of our tradition our influences and aspects of our heritage which have been incorporated mm -hmm. in other cultures and societies. Mm -hmm. And space for South British South Asians have been in Britain for more than three hundred years. So our links with Britain go back to the sixteenth century. And being Bengali, obviously I'm learning more about my history and links to Bengal. So Bengal became the first kingdom to be occupied by the British in India. So the history of the British rule dates back to 1680 when the first East India Company secured a trading charter from the Mughal Emperor um, in. And then in 1757, we have the Battle of Palassi, the Battle of Palassi in English, in Kolkata, where the British took full occupation um, by setting up headquarters in Kolkata in India. And then following year, you know, the British took over the rest of Bengal. So this, to me, is what it means to know to celebrate and, and, and do some activities during the South Asian Heritage Month. We need to reclaim our history. We need to know our own identities, our own history. Definitely, that's really important. So as the chair of uh, Brit Bangla, wh wh what do you do so people are aware of uh, South Asian culture and why is it important for people to 
basically recognize and respect other cultures? Well, cultural diversity has become very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and the benefits of learning and understanding cultures promote respect and tolerance. We need that with It really helps dispel the negative stereotypes and personal biases about different groups. I'm sure all of us have experienced some some of those um, kind of negative stereotypes mm-hmm. of working in the environment. And um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, obviously bringing that experience and focusing on Brit Bangla's mission um, is on diversity and leadership. So we aim to increase diversity in workplace and increase minority ethnic leadership to do these through our activities in collaboration with organisations. I'll give examples like the Museum of London in Joplin, Ludbury University's Migrant Memory and Postcolonial Migration Research Team, Bridge Arts Centre. These are just examples of some of the organisations that Bangla works with. We're about celebrating heritage and bringing awareness of our own Bengali history. And this helps us to understand how to fit into the use of society better. We always talk about diversity and inclusion, but this is about understanding our own links with history and helps to define and to be proud of our own identity. So for Brit Bangla, it's the British and the Bengali heritage, be proud of both because we have a dual culture. Um, so when I, some of the activities previously, um, from London based, with the Museum of London, Rockland, I did a talk, Adventures of Bengal Pioneers, um, also the Rockland Museum hosted, um, Spring Festival, which is great, first time I've ever had a, a mainstream museum do that, Oshampo means Spring Festival, and we did all these wonderful South Asian, um, topics and art activities. Um, and then the main one I'd love to um, share with you is the Bengali Britain project. And just before the South Asian Heritage Month was being launched, um, before COVID-19 hit us for two years, and I, I was involved with the Bengali Britain project, and it was an exhibition to educate and inspire communities um, from all South Asian communities to reconnect and capture our own family history. And given that we are now almost like three generations in Britain, we are losing our own personal story. I'm not talking about written history, written by academics. I'm talking about me and your voices, our personal stories. Like we, you have mentioned about our vision stories, we all, all of our family members, our extended family members, we have stories that consist of our version of stories. So I'm really passionate about that, that we, we need to capture our personal stories, our memories, before it's three days. So we have an event this Saturday, a story of Bengal as part of um, South Asian Heritage Month. Um, it's been hosted by Loughborough University and two not, not non-profit organisations, Restless Teams and um, another organisation, and uh, this is the Everyday Muslim Heritage. So the aim is to bring communities together, to inspire them to preserve and celebrate that heritage and culture. It's an event to, to provoke discussion and raise awareness about our heritage, culture, and identity. So stories to tell is the main theme there. And then obviously another event that I'm doing on the 17th of August at the Western School and the 12th of September to celebrate the Sarah's Heritage Month. 
for um, to be on the 17th of Um So that's another one I'll be doing coming up. Mm-hmm. And then um, end of the year, in terms of celebrating some of our culture, being part of your identity is really difficult when you're sitting in a different society, maintaining a mode with some identity, also practice some of our own traditional cultures. So I'm holding hosting a panel talk as part of a seasonal Bangladesh drama and when is that takes place. And um, this will be taking place at the Richmond in Bethnal Green on the 17th of November. So I shall have a panel of women and take their perspective on their Bengali heritage and culture and, and, and include some climate climate related aspects. So these are some of the highlights that I've shared with you. Because we are British, but we also have our own identity, which we should be proud of. That's amazing. Uh, so, uh, one more question is that some attributes of South Asian culture are its uh, delicious cuisine and various languages. So, do you think there are some aspects people are still unaware of? Well, we all love a samosa and biryani. Um, that, that, that's great. Some of the uh, main ones that everyone thinks about when they think about South Asian culture. But from my perspective, in terms of historical figures that we, especially in South Asia, in like India, that we, we should know about or we do know about, is the iconic figure that resonates with me. And this is um, someone called Begum Rukia. Her original name is Rukia Sabawat Hussein. She was born in 1890. So this is from my great grandmother's era. So this iconic figure, um, she she resonates well with, um, well, she did highlight issues of gender inequality. She advocated for men and women to be treated equally. These are in the days of the She's a legendary uh, figure who was active in socialism, hatred, and the feminist. And then she was famous for writing a novel called What He Has Been, and the book that's well ahead of the time, that book, um, also mentions about solar power. Now we're all talking about, um, you know, environmental impact of heat waves and all the climate impact. Well, Begum Rukia was also practicing Muslim, he practiced Quran by five times a day, and she worked primarily for Muslim women, and she set up, she was quite passionate about it as well, um, and she set up a school for Buffer in 1911 to educate and the life of the Gumbukit is so inspirational. Um, I only learned about the Gumbukit in the last 10 years. I have no idea who was such a big influence within my own family. Say, for example, my nanny. And um, she was inspired to name the daughter my auntie after the Gumbukit. Um, and I had no idea about that. So my auntie also, the son of Rukia, lived up to her name. That's another edge on our side of our family. And also my uncle, my mum's cousin, who was a surgeon, dedicated his home just before he was dying from cancer. And he was going to become a healthcare facility for women and children. And this was to be serviced by female doctors and nurses and employees. And the oh, health really? clinic is also named the Gumbukia. Uh, Tyron, thank you so much for uh, joining us today in, in this uh, breakfast show and sharing your expertise. And uh, hopefully... Uh, We'll have time to speak to you again soon. I really enjoyed myself and I hope, um, I'm pretty sure, all the listeners benefited from talking to you. Thank you once again. Thank you. That was 
And uh, why is it important for us to celebrate and preserve the history of different cultures? Well, I think that's important for uh, everybody throughout the world and uh, each sector of the world, each nation, uh, you know, each culture has their story to tell. So it's very, very important to record that. Um, the Indians have done that very well uh, over the past many centuries, as of the Chinese and Europeans uh, as well. And for us in the modern world, it's essential because don't forget we were colonized for over 200 years uh, as Asians, or, or those of us with Asian origins. And um, a lot of the history was written by somewhat biased Western historians because the victors always tend to write history from their point of view. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when I think about my own life, I came here at the age of uh, nine from Kashmir didn't have a clue about South Asian history and basically grew up with a very biased view from the Western media of how, you know, India was civilized and how backward all the rest of the world was and Europeans were the greatest people, greatest thinkers, greatest conquerors. 
And yet, when you start studying history, you realize that that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look back uh, at ancient India, even from the classics, you know, when you compare the Odyssey and Iliad of the Europeans and the Greeks, um, um, Bhagavad Gita, even the Vedic scriptures, the Ramayana, um, Mahabharata, these were epic poems and classical writings. Mm-hmm. And then you look at conquerors like Ashoka, who essentially adopted Buddhism. That was one of the greatest and biggest empires the world had seen. And then you look at the Mughal Empire and its mm. richness and its contribution to art and culture, um, you know, with the Taj Mahal, etc. Yeah. So um, these things are not taught to you, or certainly were not taught to our generation. And increasingly now, South Asians are saying that we want our history to be taught and certainly understood by our children, if not the wider world. And I think it's right for us to promote that. Right, right. And if there are any misconceptions, what... Uh, it, what are the misconceptions about South Asian help culture? I think in the Western world there's been this view conveyed that, you know, um, these people have always been fighting each other and they've had the problems across ethnicities and religious divisions, etc. And they're always quarreling and uh, having wars. That is not true because Europe tore itself to bits based on both religious turmoil and political later on as well. So these things, even the American Civil War, you'll know how bad it was for those living there. So this is a case across humanity. But it's a, it's a view that is often conveyed in the media that, you know, we're civilized and we don't fight, but everybody else is fighting each other and killing each other. And that's not necessarily the case. Of course, there are tensions, there are injustices which need to be addressed in South Asian countries, and probably more so at the moment, unfortunately, uh, than many other parts. But uh, that's an ongoing role. I think here in this country and in Britain, you know, the communities live uh, um, very peacefully and are very supportive and understanding of each other. And that's what education does. And when you start looking at history fairly and different cultures fairly, so our role is to make sure that we establish harmony across across right. different cultures and religious groups. Right. Brother Muhammad Iqbal, thank you so much for taking your time out and talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And Jazakallah once again. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Brother Muhammad Iqbal, the producer and presenter of Living History at the Voice of Islam. Now, shortly, very quickly, like to head off to one audio clip we have of the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Let's take a look. So the question is about racism in Britain. Uh, but I don't understand why are you asking this question. Everybody knows the television programs present this, and racism. It's not just in Britain; it's everywhere. Yeah. It's raising its head. It remained uh, dormant for a while, not very dormant, but to a degree dormant for a while during the East-West polarization when there were communists pitched against the capitalists of the outside world, then because of the fear of racism further involving things and pushing people to communism, all the countries tried not to encourage racism to raise its head. Now this fear is over. Now everywhere in Europe and also everywhere in the third world country, Several countries, uh, uh, racism is raising its head. You see, when you say racism in Britain, you should also think of racism in Ghana, racism in Nigeria, racism in 
Sierra Leone. Everywhere, it is this, uh, it's raising its ugly head. And it should be condemned wherever it is. And uh, every effort should be made jointly, if possible, by different communities to suppress the inclination towards racism. It's bad for people. Bad for the racists as well as for those who suffer at the hands of the racists. It's a two-way weapon with, with which they commit suicide. Racism always, I believe, has some roots in inferiority complex. If you deeply analyze, you know, those of the British or the Germans or others who are not jealous of other people, who are complacent and confident and live happily, they are very unlikely to entertain racism. Only those who see others coming from different countries and having a better way of life, achieving a better way of life, they become jealous. And this jealousy is rooted always in an inferiority complex. And everywhere, if you study the root causes of racism, you will find this jealousy working behind. And it works against the person who is jealous as well. You see, it's a very deadly poison. That's why I advise even African Amadis when I go there, Afro-American Amadis, when I go to America, I tell them that it's against your own interest. Inferiority complex is a deadly poison. And racism, whether it's black racism or white racism or yellow racism, racism is a satanic thing. It should be totally rejected by true believers. That was the fourth head of the Ahmadi Muslim community. And in fact, he summarized the Islamic point of view and perspective in the most excellent manner whatsoever. Uh, dear listeners, we have reached the end of today's breakfast show. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in and our experts for taking time out to discuss the topics. Uh, not to forget the production team, tech team, guests and listeners uh, the researchers, Hania Sajid, Khafiya Latif, uh, Sophia Nusheen, uh, Saleh Ahmed, Subia Ahmed, Waki Khan, Sabah Ijaz, and see you tomorrow.